Come on down to Narangong, where narrow-minded folk belong. Bring the kids, it's a bloody good place to be. There's a bakery and a primary school, a decent pub and a public pool. There's a roundabout and a bloody good petting zoo to boot. So come on down, grab a beer. You can stay if you're from here. And if you're not, you best be moving along from Narangong. You can't. Hey, is it on? Yeah. Nah, is it on though? Shouldn't there be a light or something? I can't even... There's not a light. Is it on? Should I start? I'll start. I just want to make sure it's on before I start. Otherwise, I'm just talking. Yeah. I sh- Will it turn off when I'm not talking? Otherwise, what if I want to step out for a smoke? It'll be, it'll be a big break if I'm out for a smoke, though. Go out for a smoke, oh. It'll be ten minutes. Everything I'm saying right now is on there. We can we can probably edit that out, I reckon. Right, I'll start. G'day, cunts. Welcome to the Oral History Project in Narangong, South Australia's tidiest town, 1993, 2003 and 2008. Home of Australia's best Cornish pasty, 1997. And home to the legendary Narra Fighting Ruse. Can the Ruse! The Oral History Project's an attempt to preserve the town's storied past to pass along to its glorious future... We're hoping to bring you a selection of accounts of the more interesting, historic and contemporary events from this lovely town. We're also hoping to be joined in the Narangong Public Library's recording studio by some of the town's prominent residents who'll share their perspective on the town's history and perhaps its direction into the future. I want to take a moment now to recognise our sponsor, Old Man Shanky, down at legendary Shanky's Hayrakes. Shanky's Hayrakes, they'll rake your fucking hay. Carrying on, I'd like to start with a story of one of Nara's proudest recent moments, its entree into the entertainment business. What Germany is to high-performance automobiles, what China is to long-distance construction, and what Japan is to strange sexual fetishes involving marine life. That's what Nara is to television screenwriting. And that's all thanks to the works of one man, Australian Charles Darwin. Noted zoologist and owner of... Here, what's that? Nah. Nah, it's zoologist. Yeah. Yeah, it looks funny, but you say zoologist. Yeah, nah, I assure you it is. It's alright. I'll keep going. Noted zoologist and owner of the town's best and only petting zoo, he... Here. What? No. No, you still say zoo. Yeah, no, we haven't changed that. No, you say zoo. You say zoologist, but you say zoo. Don't look at me like that. I didn't, I didn't invent the bloody words. I'm just saying them. Yeah. How about I keep going? We talk about it later, all right? Without further ado, I present to you Infinite Monkeys. Civilizations are known by three things their greatest victories, their greatest minds, and their greatest feats. Consider the Greeks. They'd be known throughout history if all they'd done was turn back tides of invading Persians. But they also produced democracy, metaphysical caves, and a two-hour-long play about a bloke who fucked his mum. And their architectural and cultural feats endure. The Parthenon, the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, the fish and chip shop. Narangong too will endure. Its battles are fought not by warships in the narrow straits and defiles, 
but by its brave lads on the footy oval. The wisdom of its intellectuals is preserved in these pages. Its innovative cultural and architectural legacy will live on in Shanky's automated hayrake, the Shanky welcome arch in the centre of town, and in Australian Charles Darwin's narrow petting zoo and centre for evolutionary studies, sponsored by Shanky's. The zoo was a masterpiece in chain link and corrugated iron, but its aesthetic charm was only an invitation to enter and bathe in the fountain of knowledge within. Australian Charles Darwin was the town's best and only zoologist, and he welcomed the chance to share his wisdom with crowds of kids on school excursions, tourists, and those who simply puzzled at the platypus's origins. Despite his extensive knowledge of native fauna, Australian Charles Darwin's free-ranging mind had not been shackled by the heavy burdens of higher education. I've not actually been to university, he liked to say, but I have been to Darwin. These unassailable credentials had helped him rise to a position of scientific preeminence in the town, but he had begun to yearn for something more. The roads of science were rewarding but narrow, and within the same body that housed Australian Charles Darwin's coldly rational brain was an adventurous heart that beat for untamed wilderness. Australian Charles Darwin dreamed of art. He had invited Cliff Shanky, Nara's poet laureate, over for morning tea and the two were touring the zoo. Cliff peered through a chain-link fence covered in a curtain of hessian sacks, scratched his head, and took another swig from his beer. Tell me again, mate. Right, said Australian Charles Darwin. You've heard this theory about the monkeys? Heaps of monkeys are good riders, yeah? Cliff ventured. Nah, mate, not heaps. Infinite monkeys. They say if you have infinite monkeys working on infinite typewriters... Eventually, they will reproduce the entire works of William Bloody Shakespeare. Right, said Cliff, brightening up now they were on more familiar ground. Monkey or not monkey, that is the question. He beamed at Australian Charles Darwin. Australian Charles Darwin glared back at him. No bloody question about it, mate. Monkey, infinite bloody monkey. Australian Charles Darwin's enthusiasm had pushed him dangerously close to the border of exasperation, but he pressed on. An infinite bloody typewriter too. Cliff scratched his head, took another swig from his beer, and meditated on the comparative merits of discretion. Australian Charles Darwin went on. So you got infinite monkeys and infinite typewriters, and you get the collected works of Bill Shakespeare, which sounds pretty bloody good until you realise that A, it's been bloody done before, and two, you can find that lot down the library and make copies of it. No one's going to be impressed if you're sharp with a bloody book everyone's read before, especially once you factor in the cost of infinite maintenance. Here, look at me, you announce. I've invented a simian-powered photocopier, and it only costs 19,000 bananas per page. I don't bloody think so. I don't reckon you can put bananas on your copy card, for one thing, said Cliff, trying desperately to keep up. Too right. So there's no bloody point in getting infinite bloody monkeys and infinite bloody typewriters. So Shakespeare's out of the question. But what's next best? His eyes glinted unblinkingly as they met Cliff's confused, slightly terrified gaze. What's the second greatest dramatic work in all of human bloody history? Cliff could tell there was a right answer, but he could also tell he was paddling very close to a deep and treacherous ocean of wrong ones. He took a final swig from his beer and ventured to guess. Home and away, mate. Too bloody right home and away, Charles shouted gleefully. It's got all your greatest dramatic elements. Romance, tragedy, people talking. But a great work like that doesn't just spring forth, does it? 
It takes the right set of circumstances mixed perfectly together. So I got to thinking about circumstances, and it occurred to me, there's never just one of them. Cliff did his best to follow along. The Australian Charles Darwin explained that the greatest developments in our civilization have come from contrasts, combinations, co-minglings. The unexpected, unpredictable confluence of conflicting complementary cultures, cuisines, or chromosomes. The pie floater. Nicole Kidman. The platypus. Australian Charles Darwin paused when he saw the puzzled look on Cliff's face. Cliff wondered out loud. The pie floater makes sense, he began. Soup plus a bloody pie. Obviously, Nicole's a lovely lass and a great example of the unexpected combination of someone who was born in England but raised to be quite good-looking. But what's the bloody platypus got to do with it, mate? asked Cliff. Australian Charles Darwin nodded knowingly. It was not for nothing he was a well-respected intellect in the local community. His ability to synthesise complex scientific theories into easily digestible narratives had entertained and educated the locals for years. Say, your platypus is a perfect example of evolution, he began. It's your average duck, pretty common, right? But it got fucked by a sea otter. After Cliff had taken this in, and both men had opened another beer, Australian Charles Darwin went on to explain how his contribution to the Australian literary canon also was to be a contrast. There's no use just writing something down, is there? Everyone's writing things down. It's got to be a bloody brilliant combination of my duality. I have to combine my inner contemplative literary spirit with my outer vibrant animalistic nature. Just like Shakespeare, from conflict, I will produce art. It's going to be literature... Plus a petting zoo. Shakespeare had a petting zoo, wondered Cliff. What? Nah, no bloody petting zoo, mate. Australian Charles Darwin shook his head in exasperation. Blokes in bloody dresses. Deeming this explanation sufficient, and evidently dissatisfied with the direction in which the conversation had turned, Australian Charles Darwin waved his hands in the air to disperse the unpleasant odour of Cliff's inquiry. He stepped quickly toward the fence and gripped the edge of the Hessian sacks. Without further ado, I present to you the next Logie Award-winning screenwriting team for the second greatest dramatic work in all of human bloody history. The sacks fell, and Cliff looked through the fence at a spacious and curiously appointed enclosure. There were trees, which seemed pretty standard for a monkey cage, but also a long desk surrounded by six chairs. Three of the chairs were pulled up to the table, and the other three had been knocked over, but what really caught Cliff's eyes were the six typewriters. Five stacks of paper sat next to five typewriters. Drifts of what looked like snow heaped against the base of a tree were all that was left of the sixth. Each of the typewriters had been fed a single sheet of paper, and each sheet sat exactly where it began, untouched, except that the corners of one had been gnawed away. In another corner were a low armchair and mahogany side table, on which sat a large crystal ashtray. A chimpanzee lounged in the chair, chewing on one end of a curved wooden pipe. Well, mate, said Australian Charles Darwin proudly, what do you reckon? Cliff paused. Normally quick with a witty reply, he searched for the appropriate words. Three more chimpanzees played vigorously in the trees, and an odd brown creature clung motionless to a bare tree trunk. I'll tell you what, mate, Cliff said, pointing at it. I reckon that's a bloody sloth. Could be, could be, said Australian Charles Darwin, nodding thoughtfully. There was a brief silence. Of course, they're related to monkeys. They all fall under the same general... 
ape umbrella, if you will. Cliff was not in a position to argue with Nara's preeminent zoologist, but he quickly found himself on firmer footing. He pointed across the enclosure. Now, I'm bloody certain that's a kangaroo. And it was. A small red fuzzy kangaroo sat in the branches of a low tree, eating an orange. Tree kangaroo, mate. It's half monkey, right? You get back far enough in this family tree, you're going to find a sexually adventurous kangaroo and a monkey that couldn't reach a tree in time. Cliff looked sceptical, but Australian Charles Darwin waved a dismissive hand. He's in charge of the bloody dialogue, mate, not plot development. Anyway, let's see what they've written today. Australian Charles Darwin led the way to the enclosure door. A sign over it announced, Quiet! Genius at work. Australian Charles Darwin held the door for Cliff, then pulled it shut behind him until it latched with an audible click. Bunches of bananas hung from a hat stand by the gate. Australian Charles Darwin walked over to the writing desk while the chimps hooted in the trees. The tree kangaroo nibbled at his orange, and the sloth did nothing. To Cliff's surprise, the pages did bear the marks of some form of production. Every single one had been smeared with shit. Only one typewriter had produced written results. The top of the page, loaded into the typewriter, ready to face the ravages of hominid genius, had been gnawed away. But halfway down, the chimps having apparently discovered the joys of the carriage return, some nimble-fingered creature had left his literary legacy. H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H-G-H... It went on for lines. That looks like shit, noted Cliff. I reckon it is, but if you brush it off, you can see they've just typed more of the same crap below. That'll be the chimps. Not the sloth, then. Nah, he pretty much just sleeps in his tree. He'll hang out up there for about a week before he comes down to do his business. You've never seen anyone so happy as a sloth when he's taking a week old shit. And that's when he gets on the typewriter. Nah, he mostly climbs back up the tree and goes to sleep. Australian Charles Darwin sighed as he collected the page, placed fresh paper in the typewriters, and replenished the sheaves of spare paper at every writing station. He trudged toward the house, Cliff hurrying after and catching the door before it slammed. It swung shut with a gentle thump. Australian Charles Darwin led the way to a small room in his house and pinned the filthy page alongside a hundred or so more that lined the walls. Some pages had been marked with a red pen. Cliff looked closely and saw that Australian Charles Darwin had circled where actual words hid themselves among jumbled letters. L-M-N-O-P-O-N-O-N-O-N-O-N-O-N-O. Five small red circles surrounded each repetition of the word no. W-W-W-W-W-E-R-E-R-E-A-D-D-D-D. Australian Charles Darwin had circled the letters were red and noted sentence structure in the margin. In a gesture notable as much for its optimism as its pretentious prescriptivism, he'd also written, consider rephrasing, active voice. He waved Cliff into a sagging old chair, sank into another, and let out a long, deep sigh. (sighs) The path of the artist is long and tortured. Right, said Cliff, reflecting on his own journey. But it's not that bad, mate. You're just starting out, right? And things will turn good soon. After all, Shakespeare had bloody infinite of the things, and you've only got four monkeys. Six! I've got six bloody monkeys, Australian Charles Darwin cut in. Right, and one of your monkeys is a bloody kangaroo. He's in charge of the bloody dialogue. But the point is, I bet that old cunt had a lot more bloody monkeys than you do, right? It's going to take you a bit longer. How long have you been at this? A year and a bloody half, said Australian Charles Darwin morosely. Look, mate. 
Cliff began, but he was cut off by a rumbling on the roof. The two men looked up. The rumbling was followed by a loud screech. Australian Charles Darwin shot up out of his chair. The bloody monkeys! He yelled. He was outside in a flash, Cliff hot on his heels. True enough, the door to the artist's enclave was hanging open. A banana smacked into the back of Australian Charles Darwin's head, but by the time he'd turned, his roof was empty. The tree kangaroo also was missing. They've up and gone fucking Kerouac on me, mate! Cliff stared back in confusion. They're on the road! We gotta track them down! Australian Charles Darwin set off around his house. It turned out to be easier to track the chimps than they had expected. A trail of shredded paper led them to Shanky's welcome arch in the centre of town. A small drift lay in the road, and the chimps, sitting atop the arch, shrieked with glee each time a truck rolled through and stirred the pile into willy-willies. It was considerably more difficult to get them down. Australian Charles Darwin made several trips back to the petting zoo for supplies, before the chimps succumbed, one by one, to the lure of a comfortable armchair and a pipe to chew on. The tree kangaroo was a different story. Four hours after they'd locked the chimps up, they'd combed every inch of the town and come up short. They'd been up and down every sizable tree and had closely inspected the ruin closure on the drive into town in case the clever bugger had gone in for a bit of camouflage. They finally got a break when Ruth called to report a wallaby was sitting at a hill's hoist eating her locusts, and would they mind coming to take care of him, thank you kindly. Australian Charles Darwin pulled the door shut with an audible click. He looked around in exasperation. One of the chimps already had seized upon a pile of fresh paper and was turning it swiftly into heaping white drifts. The rest were shrieking as they chased each other through the trees, and the kangaroo was shuffling higher up his own sloping branch, clutching a handful of locusts. Come on, you lot! Australian Charles Darwin shouted. I've had it up to bloody here with this temperamental artist bullshit! The chimps screamed back, and the tree kangaroo munched a locust. What's it going to bloody take for the second greatest dramatic work in all of human bloody history? What are you capable of? Something wet sailed past his ear and splattered onto the ground behind him, providing a succinct response. Australian Charles Darwin sighed. <sighs> Maybe we don't have it in us, lads. Maybe we're not cut out for literary success. He stopped. A page had been fed through one of the typewriters. The top of it stuck straight up into the air, bright white and unsullied like an albino peacock. He stepped closer. A cluster of letters huddled in the top left-hand corner of the page. Alf. Australian Charles Darwin took a breath. He closed his eyes and then opened them slowly. The letters were still there. Alf! Could it be? These three letters marked actual progress towards his literary goal. No mere shit-stained jumble. This was identifiable, relevant, plot development. He reached for the page. It was stuck. Something was catching at the bottom. The swing arms of three letters had jammed together, pressing against the bottom of the sheet. The Y was stuck down, mashed with the letters to either side. Australian Charles Darwin pressed and jiggled the keys until they sprang back. They left a heavy mark on the page, a smudgy, overprinted Y at the end of a short set of letters. He read them. Angry. He peered over his shoulder. Oi! He cried out. Who's playing silly buggers? One of the chips hooted from above. Cliff had been with him all day, he reasoned, chasing four chimpanzees and a tree kangaroo. He'd showed no one else the secret writing installation. There was only one explanation. He looked at the page again. 
Alf up in the top left-hand corner. And down at the bottom, angry. In the corner of the enclosure, the sloth hugged the base of his tree and smiled. Most of the town came by Australian Charles Darwin's petting zoo and Centre for Evolutionary Studies, sponsored by Shankies, to watch. He had used some of the money to put in an outdoor theatre for the viewing of educational videos on native animals, evolution and literary history. Tonight, though, was a special occasion. People had set up folding chairs and picnic blankets, they'd broken out the plonk and were enjoying olives and conversation in the warm night air. Shh! Someone hissed. Shh! It's starting! Everybody settled into their seats and stared expectantly at the screen as the opening credits welcomed them to another instalment of the second greatest dramatic work in all of human bloody history. The show faded into the interior of a comfortable-looking cafe. Alf walked in. He looked angry. What a ripping yarn. That was Infinite Monkeys. We hope you'll join us next week for another instalment. Welcome to Narangong, the oral history project for the charming southeastern South Australian town of Narangong. Until then, take it easy. Right, now that's over, get a fucking dictionary out.